Hello, this is Dr. Ed Hill, host of This Week in the Word, where we grow in our knowledge of the Word of God and our walk with Christ. I'm so happy you joined us for our podcast today. We've been in a series called The Great Rapture Debate. We're going through 1 Thessalonians to see what God's Word has to say about the doctrine of the rapture of the church. Today, the title of this episode is Extraction, Part 1. We're going to look at the rapture effect. You know, as we have made our way through 1 Thessalonians, we've seen that that third church in Thessalonica, Greece, was a very strong church, very young though, and they were they were doing pretty well in their love, pretty well in their faith, but they were slipping just a little bit on their hope, the great trilogy of the Christian faith, and we've likened that to a stool, let's say a little child's three-legged stool. As long as that little stool has three legs, it works just fine. But if one of the legs is missing, obviously the stool will fall over. And so the Thessalonian church was bordering a little bit in the area of hope. They were bordering on some instability. So Paul writes this letter, led by the Spirit of God, to strengthen them in that area of hope. Well, let's, let's go right to 1 Thessalonians. We're in chapter 4, starting today. And let's read in verses 1 and 2. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments... We gave you by the Lord Jesus. So part of the, the rapture effect is we think about what happens when the doctor, doctrine of the rapture of the church is understood and believed among Christians is that we, we realize that we have some marching orders from our commander-in-chief, so to speak, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has given us marching orders. Right there in verse 2, that word used for commandments is most often used in Greek relative to a military commander ordering his troops as to what they are to do. Even today in our military, our soldiers are given orders. That's what they're called. (laughs) They're given orders. Those are verbal orders, obviously, but also given written orders as to what their their function is to be and to do in a certain situation. So two aspects of the rapture effect, two, two good things that flow from living in the light of the rapture is sort of like, um, and I mean this in a good way, sort of like when you were little, your mom said, uh, your dad's going to be home soon. Make sure your room's cleaned up and the yard is cut. And you know the reason for that is when your dad gets home, you're going to a ball game together. So something, you're anticipating something good, and you are reminded, let's say by your mom, to make sure that you're ready. Well, that is part of the rapture effect when believers understand the teaching of the Lord, his orders, his commandments 
regarding how we are to conduct ourselves. And, and that actually is what I want to show you in verses 3 through 10, um, 3 through 11, rather, or even 12. <laughs> I want to show you that there, there is a, to be a certain conduct of Christians, a certain way we are to live our lives here in this world before the Lord comes for us. Look in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God. You know, often people say, I wish I just knew the will of God. Well, here you're about to hear part of it right here. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his spirit, his Holy Spirit, rather. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed, ye do it toward all the brethren which are in Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more and that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, that is, non-Christians, and that ye may have lack of nothing. All right, let's go back and break some of that down. <clears throat> Christians are instructed here, based on the commandments of Christ himself, and Paul had taught them this previously, but they're reminded here again, there is a conduct that is expected of Christians by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And that area is especially marked out right here. And of course, it applies to many things, but specifically right here, it has to do with our morality, especially our sexual morality. You see, the proper way for us to conduct ourselves in that area is our theology should dictate our morality. But too often in the world, I mean almost all the time in the world among unsaved people and people who say they're Christians but aren't really serious about it, morality tends to dictate their theology. And of course, that's reverse. So look at verse 3 again. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. That is, you are to be set apart. You are to live a holy life. That ye should, and then he says, that ye should abstain from fornication. That word fornication is the Greek word pornea. And it, it just means, uh, has to do with sexual sin of all types. And, you know, if you think of... Um, the, the way we are to live our lives in terms of human sexuality, it's like a fire, a, a, a roaring fire in a, 
a fireplace in our home is a wonderful thing, but a roaring fire anywhere else in our home can be disaster, right? Well, the same, same way here. We should be under the Lord's control in this area, and that applies to every, every area in our life, but especially to our sexual morality. You see, it's, it's easy to try to blend in in a pagan culture because it's just so pagan. But it's also easy to stand out for Christ by conducting ourselves as Christians in the way that we ought to. Then he mentions here, he goes further, and he, he warns them that the Lord avenges this. So we, this is pretty serious, very serious. We should take this seriously. Uh, this means that people who profess the name of Christ should not be living together as if they were married. And if you're listening to this and you're in that category, you know what? If that's the person that you should be married to, marry them, okay? If you are married, then you're not to be uh, consorting with people, anyone else, you know, other than your your mate. So, and, and this covers any other, you know, dealing with any other people. So the point is, you know what I'm talking about. We should live in the way that we know we should, even though the world says, oh, it's okay, and even many professional Christians say, oh, it's okay, it doesn't matter. It matters. And if you're naming the name of Christ and you realize that the Lord could come at any moment for his church, or obviously any of us, none of us are promised one more minute, one more day, I mean, we don't want to be living in such a way, especially in this area, and have the rapture occur or we die. You see what I'm saying? It, it has an effect on us where we say, you know, I'm, I'm going to live the right way. I'm, I'm going to do what I know is right with the Lord's strength. And we should set our parts, ourselves, especially in this area, as holy to the Lord. And in verse 8, he gives a warning. He, therefore, that despiseth, despiseth not man. In other words, this is not me saying it or just Paul saying it. What does he say? He, therefore, that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. So the part of the rapture effect, as we think about the extraction, eventually, of the church, is, is that it influences us in a positive manner as to how our, uh, you know, what our morality is, especially in that area, but other areas as well. In verse 9, he goes back now to the theme of the, the love, the agape, the God's kind of sacrificial love, but it's touching brotherly love Ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. There's that agape love. So they had the, you know, the brotherly love, and and it was just to really be infused with God's supernatural type of sacrificial love. And it wasn't that they weren't doing it. He wants them to grow in that. Verse 10, And indeed ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase 
more and more. I'm going to give you an example. Today, listening to Scripture and getting ready to come to church, I I was thinking about the many people who are suffering. Uh, I'm recording this, so you have a time frame in February 2020, and the coronavirus has sickened many around the world, and some have died. And I was praying this morning just you know, briefly, I'm not going to tell you I prayed an hour about it, but I prayed for the people who are suffering with this virus and those who have been bereaved because a loved one, a friend, someone has died because of this. And I've prayed for those who are researching it that they can can help prevent this from spreading and stop the suffering and praying that even that people would come to Christ in, in this very terrible event. So I'm not holding myself up as some kind of model. I'm just saying, you know, left to my own devices, I would be about me, myself, and I, and that's a mighty small club. Thankfully, God has grown me, and uh, probably at one point in my life, I was us four and no more, you know, close the door. But now, as I'm older and I've walked with the Lord farther, my love, thankfully, and the Lord did this, not me, but my love now is global. You know, I can pray for people that just personally, I may not even like them, but I can pray for them because I want God's best in their life. Do you, does that make sense to you? And then especially, obviously, believers in Christ around the world that I've never met, maybe they live in another culture, there's a connection there that's that's spiritual. It's supernatural. It's God's sacrificial type of love. Well, he goes uh, further here. And um, in uh, verse 11, and I believe we already read that, and that you study to be quiet. You know, we live in a, a world today, a world system, and that that is what is under control of Satan, because this is his domain down here, he runs this world system. But Ed, I thought God was God. God is God. And he just lets Satan do that. Satan's on a very short leash, but he does have a lot to do with how this world system operates. Satan is the God of this world, but he is not God himself. And the world system is characterized by just constant chaos and constant activity uh, where people seem to need adrenaline rushes. They become adrenaline addicts, junkies for, you know, the next big thing, the next new thing. They, their whole life so that they don't think about the fact that they're mortal and one day they'll die and they'll face God and judgment. Satan keeps everybody distracted and busy with thrills, chills, and excitement. I mean, bam, bam, bam. Have you ever seen life be so fast-paced as it is now? And yet God says not only something about the conduct of Christians, but our community uh, witness as Christians to one another and to the world. He says we are to study, to be quiet. How long has it been since you have really been quiet? One thing I've noticed, and it isn't something that I have done, I think this is something that God has grown in me, is 
many years ago, two, three decades ago, four decades ago, whatever, whatever the world was, you know, yakking about at the time, whether it was the impeachment of Richard Nixon or the Vietnam War, you know, or politics or this or that, then I was all over it. I was talking with everybody about it. It was just like, you know, the world's talking about it. I'm talking about it. You know, something interesting has happened in my life over the last several years, and I, I believe it's something God has done in me. I'm aware of all this stuff going on now, and I have very clear-cut, definite thoughts about it. I do. So I'm not confused. I, it isn't that I don't know what to think. I know what I think, okay? But, for example, I haven't talked with people about the impeachment of the president, Donald Trump. Uh, I mean, very much at all. I haven't. Uh, the Super Bowl happened last week. I'm not even sure I've said three sentences to anybody about the Super Bowl. I didn't watch it, number one. I, I saw the end of it. I know who won and all that. But, you know, the, the world system is all about that stuff. Heck, I just don't care. You know what I mean? I don't care about NBA players. I don't care about the NFL. I care less and less about the Georgia Bulldogs. I like Georgia. Um, you know, it's just a hobby to me. It's not my life. Nobody's writing me a paycheck for any of that stuff. Is this, is this dawning on you that the, the world system, the media, which is a primary representative of the world system, just wants you in a constant uproar, talking with everybody all the time? You know, you know what the truth is? Like, let's, let's just take the one thing of the impeachment of, of President Trump. And since then, he's, he's been acquitted and all that. You want to know what the truth is? I don't hear anybody talking about that except on media, pro or con. Do, do you get it that the world system run by Satan wants people to, to feel like they need to be in a constant uproar about everything? God says in verse 11 of 1 Thessalonians 4, and that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business. You know, when I was a kid, I don't know where this came from, but when I was a kid, sometimes we would tell somebody off by saying, mind your own beeswax. That's right, you heard it right. B-E-E-S-W-A-X. And I don't know who invented that, but it's like what we were saying was mind your own business. Well, we're to mind our own beeswax, like we used to say as children. The truth is that I'm enough of a mess that I need to just pay attention to me and keep my things and my activities squared away, right? I don't have time to try to run your life and the lives of 70 other people too. Unless I'm a pastor. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not an active pastor right now. But you get what I'm saying. Again, it kind of is in that whole world system thing. All this stuff that the media and the world system want me to be uptight about, hey, nobody has given me the responsibility to solve any of that stuff. Why do I have to be all worried about it? 
So we're to study to be quiet and to, to, do, to do your own business. And here's one more. And to work with your own hands as we commanded you. That idea of working with your own hands is, you know, you, you do not have time to be watching every talk show on TV, listening to every talk show on the radio, totally in a train wreck in your brain about everything, um, a, a complete social media animal, you know, up to your eyeballs so that just your whole heart and mind your spirit are totally consumed by all of that. God says, no, and that you study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands. There's something about doing our job, doing it with pride, you know, and I mean in the right sense, want to do a good job, bring honor to the Lord. There's something about that that just keeps you on the straight and narrow. Some have even seen in this something that has been used with prisoners to uh, help them gain skills, obviously, but also to, you know, if you're employed in something with your own hands, you got to have your attention on that. And there's something about that of just doing some type of work, especially manual labor. Don't ever, by the way, look down on people who work with their hands. Some of the smartest people I've ever met were people who manufactured things. That is, they worked with their hands and produced some service or product or work that others needed. I heard a true story. I think it was in a comment section of a video or blog I was reading uh, about people who work with their hands for their living. And this one fellow was talking about the fact that uh, whatever it was he did, I think he was a plumber maybe, uh, maybe he dealt with concrete or flooring or something. But anyway, he was, he was on his hands and knees and he saw this dude in a suit walk, uh, walk by with his uh, young son with him and he could overhear the dad in the suit say to his son, you see, son, now this guy's on his hands and knees working, right? And these, this dad walking by says, you see, son, that's why you need to stay in school and get good grades and work hard or you'll end up like him. What an insult. The thing is, the guy said, is that he, he was pretty sure that he made more than six figures or made six figures a year doing the trade that he was in. And how could that guy, not even knowing him, just judge him like that and put down somebody who worked with their hands? Anyway, God says, and that you study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands. You know, don't expect somebody else to do everything for you. That's, I just added that. <laughs> as we commanded you. Hopefully you're looking at the Bible and you can tell why I'm making comments and where the scripture is. Now, now, why are we to do that? Well, it relates to our conduct and our, our witness in the community. Verse 12, that ye make walk honestly toward them that are without, that is, outsiders, unbelievers, and that ye may have lack of nothing. You know, one of the biggest hindrances 
to some people believing in Christ is the Christians they run into. Or, or I'll, I'll be fair, the professing Christians they run into. Where people uh, maybe are always talking about church, always talking about the Lord, that kind of thing, which is not wrong, but they're slouches at work. They're lazy at work. They're gossips at work. Um, they do as little as they can and still draw a paycheck, you know, that kind of thing. I'll tell you what, there's a lot of non-Christians who can outwork Christians, some Christians anyway, any day. And they don't respect those Christians. And, they, and then they, they broad brush all Christians as being that way. Thank you, lazy Christians, very much for hindering the gospel of Christ and turning people away from being saved because of a terrible example. So let's read these two verses together. And that you study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without and that ye may have lack of nothing. You know, sometimes we are accused as Christians of, of like, uh, living with our heads in the cloud, uh, clouds, and that um, we're no, we're too heavenly minded and to be of any earthly good. You ever heard that? Some Christians or professing Christians are like that. But if you're going to do what the Bible says, even though, see, I realize that the rapture could happen this afternoon or next week or a year from now. I don't know when it's going to happen, but the Lord is going to take His church out of this world before his final wrath falls on a Christ-rejecting world. Well, I know that. I'm not lounging around. I'm working, I don't mean this the wrong way, but I'm working like he's never coming. I'm working to be, to take care of myself and my family and to set the right example for other Christians and to be a good witness for the Lord so that people say, well, you know, man, you really work hard. Yeah, I'd like to hear what you have to say about Jesus. You know, that's what I'm aiming at. And I don't mean that I think the Lord's not coming. I think he is coming, and I think he's coming soon. And that makes me an even better worker, uh, citizen, employee, etc. The rapture just makes us better neighbors, better family members, or it, it should. If it's not working that way in your life, you're getting something all messed up. <laughs> and whatever you do as a Christian, don't look down, especially on manual labor, because the Greeks, that these Thessalonians were, their whole culture looked down on anyone who worked with their hands. I mean, the highest good in their minds was to be uh, a professional philosopher who never did anything useful for anybody. Can I get an amen on that? And... Paul said, no, it, it should be the opposite. We should, we should study to be quiet, to do our own business, and to work with our own hands because that's what we've been commanded to do. Why do we do that? So that we can walk honestly toward them that are you know, outside the Christian faith and obviously you know, that we would have lack of nothing. We would have what we need to take care of ourselves and our families. Interesting story here. In the Welch Revival, I forget exactly when that happened. It was either in the 
late 19th century or early 20th century, and I apologize, I should have looked it up, but in the Welsh Revival, one of the things that marked the Welsh Revival is the people, after they, they came to Christ, and literally hundreds of thousands of Welsh coal miners and, and others in Wales came to Christ, and their lives were completely changed to the extent that their towns were cleaned up. They took better care of themselves and their homes and their families. Businesses that were had previously been harming their communities dried up because nobody wanted the booze and all of that anymore. The, the communities were completely transformed when Jesus reigned in in Wales. An amazing story. And if Christ has really made a difference in our life, other people should be able to see that. May they may not know why and it, and hopefully they will even ask or they'll make the connection that w- when you share Christ or you're a great worker, how'd you get that way? Because I want to live for the Lord and please the Lord, right? You see what I'm saying? There is a rapture effect of on our conduct and our community witness to everyone around us. But as we think about the extraction, and remember this is only part one. Uh, we'll go to part two, obviously, in the next episode and get into more, much more detail about the rapture of the church. But as we think about that, we come to the second little section of this chapter in 1 Thessalonians 4. Let me read the whole thing through. This is where the rapture of the church is talked about. If you've ever wondered, what is that? Why do some people believe that? It's right here. It's other places too, but definitely here. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. And as I read this, you will remember hearing this perhaps at some funerals you've attended or some occasionally in church. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus, will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So as we think about the extraction and the rapture effect, one of, the, one of the effects is comfort for Christians. Comfort for Christians. You see, 
when we think about what had been going on since Paul has started that church there in Thessalonica, Greece, and by the way, Thessalonica still exists today, very large, prosperous city in Greece. As we think about what he had done there, many had placed their faith in Christ, but since Paul had left Thessalonica, no doubt several had passed away, possibly some of the the older Christians there, or, you know, in that day and time, people didn't always live that long anyway. Anybody could have passed away since Paul had left there. So he reminds them here in this section, just as they they have their faith in Christ and they love one another, they enjoy the love of God and they, they love one another with that same love, they must also not give up their hope, you know, faith, hope, and love, right? Not give up their hope, but it had been, it had taken a beating a little bit. Why? Because even though Paul, the apostle, had taught them in the, the just a few weeks he was with them and had established that new church, Paul had even taught them as the brand newest of Christians about the return of Christ, the rapture of the church. And he had assured them that um, if that he believed Christ was coming soon. Now, I don't know exactly when the Lord Jesus Christ is coming. I feel like it's soon, but that's up to him. And I'll tell you why in our next episode, I feel like it's going to be pretty soon. But that that doesn't mean that I don't keep living the way I should live for the Lord and as a witness down here in daily life, right? But the problem was some of the believers in Thessalonica had passed away. And apparently they had had some teachers come through to say that because the Thessalonians were in suffering, that they were already in the tribulation period. They were already, uh, had missed the rapture of the church. And so they were just, they were hurting about this. They were confused. You know, if, if my mom or dad had passed away already since Paul left and Christ has not come in the rapture, will they miss the return of Christ? You know, how does this impact someone who dies prior to the rapture of the church? Or, um, you know, did our whole church miss it and all this suffering we're going through is part of the tribulation that Christ warned about? There were a lot of questions here. But Paul reminds them, he says in verse 13, but I would not have you to be ignorant. Now that word there is, is not knowing. Um, agnostic. <laughs> that's, that's literally the transliteration into English of the word there. He says, that, there's no room for agnosticism here, guys. There's not. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. And yet today, vast numbers and percentages of professing Christians are completely ignorant about what is taught right here in this passage, and it's needless because it's all explained right here, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. 
Now, the Christian view of death, well, let me put it like this. The, the Greek pagan view of death is, you know, you're living, you're dying, and that's it. You know, you're dead. And there's, there's just some long, eternal unconsciousness or a long, eternal sleep. And there ain't no more after that. That's kind of how the Greeks looked at it. I mean, really pessimistic viewpoint. But Christians looked at death as falling asleep like a short nap and they wake up with the Lord, right? Concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope, that is, non-Christians. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been to a funeral where the dearly departed was not a Christian and everybody knew it? And maybe even everybody there and all of their families were not Christians. That the, the one who died was lost and maybe their entire family was lost. Have you ever been to one of those funerals? I have. I, I'm pretty sure I've been to some that were like that. And there's just no hope. There is weeping and wailing, and, and uh, understandably so, because there's no hope for someone who dies without Christ. There's no hope that the people left behind, uh, the, like the family and friends of that one who has passed away, they have no hope of seeing them again. It's just flat-out hopeless for those loved ones, and it's a very sad thing. Christians began to call the places where they buried their dead cemeteries, and the idea in that word is it's like a dormitory. It's just a sleeping place. It's only temporary, and they'll wake up with the Lord. Isn't that great? We have hope. As we mentioned in the last podcast, the, the hope that we have is not a, um, man, I sure hope the Braves win the World Series this year. Well, hey, probably not going to happen, all right? <laughs> Braves fans. It could, but it, but it may not just as well. That kind of hope. That's not the kind of hope Christians have. True Christians have a hope that is an assurance. It is an, it's an assurance about an event that's going to take place that we are eagerly anticipating. We, we, are, we know that we know. It's not that we hope something is going to happen. We know it's going to happen. Why do we know that? Because Jesus Christ himself promised it. If you go back into John 14, and let me see if I can find this here quickly for us. John 14, 1 through 3, this is in the upper room, the night of his betrayal, before he's betrayed. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, 
that where I am, there ye may be also. Now that's John 14, one through three. I believe Christ here is alluding to the rapture of the church that we see here in 1 Thessalonians 4. Now, Paul, Paul just wants to comfort these Christians here that there is going to be a rapture, but even if you have a loved one who died, they have not missed out. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. So the Christian view of death is, yes, I, I have left to my body for sure, you know, if I've died, but to be absent from the body is to be present with Jesus Christ, right? So Christ, I believe, alluded to also the rapture. If I don't die first and am with the Lord that way, then I will be, I have the prospect if I live long enough that Christ may return for his church before I die. Do you see what I'm saying? Either way, I'm with the Lord. So he says here again, let's, let's go back and reread this. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, which we do, right? Even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself, now, I love this because he's like he's not sending Gideon, I mean, uh, Gabriel to do this or Michael, right? He's doing this. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, here's what I want you to see. When a believer in Christ dies prior to the rapture of the church, their body uh, typically is buried or entombed somewhere. Or, you know, I'll even use this example. It could have been... um, you know, they could have drowned and their body could have dissolved over time. All right, so doesn't matter. They died and they're, they're no longer in their physical body. That physical body awaits a, a new resurrection body. Okay, so hang on to that, all right? But they, the real person, has not died. They're with Christ in spirit. Now, I do not know if they have a spiritual body until they receive their resurrection body or if they are uh, or they're with the Lord only spiritually, but they are very much alive. You see, Christian 
doctrine never teaches soul sleep. We, we do not die physically and we're like unconscious or something, you know, for 3,000 years until the return of the Lord. When a believer dies, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And yet that the cemeteries today are full of the bodies of Christians who have died before the return of Christ. But they're alive with him they will return with him in the rapture of the church. They will receive their resurrection body and they'll get all of this done for them before we even go. But it all happens, as Paul says, we'll read it in a minute, in the twinkling of an eye. Say, Brother Ed, you are way over my head here. Well, hey, the Thessalonians understood it and they were brand new Christians. What is your problem? (laughs) you're just making this difficult. A five-year-old could understand this if they just opened their heart. So let let me make this real. My mom and dad had passed away. They are both believers in Christ. They are both buried in the same grave, by the way, at the Main Post Cemetery at Fort Benning, Georgia. I could go uh, this week if I wanted to and go to the place where their bodies are. The reason they're in the same grave, by the way, is at Main Post Cemetery, the, the graves are deep enough to bury three family members in that one place. So, that's where their bodies are physically. They are right now with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's say the rapture happens 31 days from now. Let's say that I live long enough to be part of that. Although some days I'm not sure I'm going to. (laughs) But let's say I did. And the rapture was 31 days from now. Before I'm taken up by the Lord in the rapture with all the true believers in Jesus Christ who are living, before all the living believers who are taken up at at the rapture of the church, my mom and dad and others like them will come with him because they're with him right now. So when he moves, they're coming too. They will receive their resurrection bodies and then all the living believers in Christ will be taken up to be with the Lord. And I believe that's, personally, I believe that's what the Lord is referring to in John chapter 14, one through three, that he is preparing a place for us, that there were many mansions many rooms in his father's house and that he would come back and receive us to himself that where he is, we would be with him there. I think that's referring to the rapture and I think that happens when somebody passes away as well, but for sure in the rapture of the church. See, Ed, you're getting way off course. Not really. I've accounted for believers who die before the rapture of the church And then we're called here, by the way, in 1 Thessalonians 4, we're called the leftovers in Greek. We're we're the things that are just remaining around, the ones remaining. In other words, the hope is, well, if somebody has died before the rapture of the church, and it's, it's like instantaneous, it's not like a long time, but instantaneously, they come with the Lord, their bodies are resurrected, and they go first. 
And then, and then we go right after that, right with them, as the Lord takes his church out of this world before the tribulation is unleashed upon this world, okay? So I'm not trying to complicate this. I'm trying to be comprehensive about this. So we can comfort one another with these words. We grieve, yes, but we do not grieve without assurance. You see, I, I can't lose my parents if I know where they are. Does that make sense? They are with the Lord. Now, let me begin to deconstruct some of this for you if you're new to the doctrine of the rapture. By the way, if your church never teaches this or preaches on this, you might want to consider getting to a church that does because you're not being given the whole counsel of God. Now, let's make sure that you understand that the rapture of the church is a different event, different than the return of Christ. How do, how do I know that? Well, let me, let me read in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 58, and then we're going to compare the rapture of the church with the, what we often call the second coming of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 58, Behold, I show you a mystery. And by the way, a mystery is something that has been concealed, but now it's going to be revealed. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That is, there will be a generation of Christians alive at the rapture of the church. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and in Greek, that's the most indivisible amount of time. I mean, it's quicker than you can blink. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So there's coming a time in the twinkling of an eye with no warning whatever when Christ removes his church from this world. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, it is called the parousia. This is the coming of Christ. But we see here specifically, let's, let's break this down even more. In, uh, let's see, caught up. Where, where is that phrase here? 
Okay, verse 17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Let me show you the confidence that we can have as Christians. We, we're not going to lose our loved ones who have died in Christ already. It's like they're asleep. They're coming with him anyway. They will receive their resurrected resurrection bodies completely perfect. You know, when they come back, all of that will be done for them. If you can think of this as sequential time before we are even raptured, but it's all it's all instant, you know, twinkling of an eye. Then we which are alive and remain, like we're we're leftovers, right? <laughs> shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. That word there, people often say, well, the rapture's not even mentioned in the Bible. The word's not even there. True enough in the English Bible. However, we get our word rapture from the Latin Vulgate translation of the Greek scriptures. And that word is rapturus. Well, that comes in the Latin from the Greek. The Greek language right here is the Greek word harpazo. That means to be caught up, to be snatched out, carried up, carried away. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. We are, we are caught up. We are taken out of this world. That's why I call this episode uh, Extraction Part One. It's like special forces operators are are they are they are infiltrated and they are they are extracted. Uh, or I think they call that exfiltrated or something like that. But it's, it's the extraction. And as we mentioned in the last episode, a couple episodes back, you know, we watch Star Trek all the time, right? And we see Captain Kirk say, beam me up, Scotty. And and that uh, transporter, you know, beams Captain Kirk back up to the Enterprise. And we watch that say, it's possible. You know, it's plausible. We don't know how to do it yet, but one day we will. Hey, why do we watch that, which is just a TV show, and God is fully able to do that, and why do we doubt God? I don't get it. Your God's too small, right? Now, by the way, if you're saying, I don't know, Ed, about this, this rapture stuff, this secret rapture, well, it's not a secret if Jesus told us about it in John 14. Paul tells us about it in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. I don't think it's exactly a secret. It's not a secret rapture. It may be the world may not understand it, although we'll get into this more in the next episode, but they're going to have to come up with an explanation for why only, only the Christian graves are open and only Christians are missing. And I'll have some... Uh, uh, prize-winning suggestions, probably, for what they're going to say. I can picture it now. But anyway, I don't want to get into that yet. So let's, let me help you out here. How do we know this is not just talking about the return of Christ? 
that Christ talked about so often in the Gospels, apart from John 14, 1 through 3, which is the only place he mentioned that, by the way. It's the only place that is written. But in the Gospels, he's talking about his return in the second coming, right? Here's what I want you to do. and I want you, I'm going to give you some homework. Take you a notebook, sheet of paper, divide it right down the middle. On the left-hand side, write return of Christ, like the second coming that we often think of. On the other side of that line down the middle of the page, write rapture of the church. So you, you get it. You got two columns. One's about the return of Christ. One's about the rapture of the church. I want you to look at all the passages. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, um, Jesus' words in John 14. There are references uh, in Titus and so on. So anyway, look these up. And here's what you're going to find. I'm going to tell you, I want you to do the homework, yes, but I'm going to tell you the end of the story before you ever get there. Clearly, the rapture of the church is a completely different event than the return of Christ. Let me give you just a couple of examples. In the return of Christ, spoken of in Acts chapter 1, the angels said, as, as Christ was ascending up into heaven, the angels said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Christ they're talking about Jesus, said this same Jesus will so come again in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. So he's going to come right back to the Mount of Olives, and we know that from Old Testament prophecy. He touches down on the Mount of Olives, and everything unfolds from there, all right? So it's a physical return, and he doesn't come to take sides. He comes to take over, baby. Amen. But that, there's no mention of that kind of thing right here in 1 Thessalonians 4. He comes to get the church, and we go back to heaven with him. Just like he said in John 14, 1 through 3. Um, let's see, uh, what else here? Uh in the, in the second coming, and you see that, for example, in Revelation 19, we all come back with him when he comes back in the second coming, when he comes to take over the earth as the rightful king. We come with him riding on white horses. You, you remember that, Revelation 19? There's no mention there of people being raptured and so forth, we're, we're all with him. Anyway, you search every passage out and you'll see that there are clearly two different sets of events. There is a day coming, yet future, and it may be soon, when the father says to the son, son, go get your bride, go get your church. And Jesus is going to come back and take his church back to heaven for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then after all of that's over, we're all coming back with him seven years later when he comes back to sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. I believe literally. I believe all of this is literal. 
Now, Ed, has there ever been, <laughs> and, and let me let me not miss one thing, verse 18 and 1 Thessalonians 4, wherefore comfort one another with these words. The word comfort there is in the present imperative. It's to continuously, we never get done doing it, we're continuously keeping on, keeping on comforting one another and it's commanded. So it hurts my heart when I think that so many churches never teach about the rapture of the church, never or rarely teach about the literal return of Christ to the earth and the second coming. They explain it away or they ignore it. What a shameful tragedy. Because we're told here that part of our comfort to one another is reminding one another that, hey, if we die before the rapture of the church, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, so that's good. But we may even be among those Christians living when Christ returns in the rapture for his church. So verse 18 says, wherefore comfort one another with these words. Now, you may be asking, Ed, has this ever happened before? Yeah. And I don't have the scripture references, but they'll be exceedingly easy to find if you do an online search. Easy to find. Enoch in the book of Genesis was raptured. God, God just took him home, living. He'd never died. Elijah the prophet, you've heard of him. He was literally taken up into heaven by uh, the, the chariots, chariot of God in that whirlwind. He was raptured. He never died. They never found his body. You know why? He was bodily taken into heaven, just like Enoch. The Lord Jesus Christ, I guess you could say that was a form of rapture as well. After his death, burial, and resurrection, he was ascended into heaven, and he's coming again the same way. Then Philip the deacon in the book of Acts was transported by the Holy Spirit from where he was to a desert setting to witness to the Ethiopian eunuch who trusted Christ um, and I, I'm sorry, I think I'm getting that wrong. He was, he was there anyway. I'm, I have to reread that. Was he, was he transported there and it happened? Uh, but anyway, this is what I know for sure. I should have read that to remind myself of the sequence of events, but you can find it in the book of Acts. Philip the deacon. But when, once the Ethiopian eunuch had trusted Christ and been baptized, he for sure he was raptured, Philip was, from there to another place. So I may have may have gotten it mixed up this sequence there, but you can look it up. But yeah, there was a rapture there. And possibly Paul was raptured because he said he saw things in heaven and you know, saw and heard things and it wasn't lawful for a man to, you know, divulge and all that. And he doesn't know whether he was there in a like it was a vision or he wasn't really sure what happened. Was that a rapture? I don't, I don't know. But of course, Paul certainly finished his life out and was executed for his faith in Christ. And I was thinking today, possibly the Apostle John experienced some 
form of this, possibly. I, I guess we could argue about that, whether it was a vision or he was raptured where he saw some of these events in the book of the Revelation. But anyway, Enoch and Elijah are definite Old Testament examples of the rapture, and so is uh, so are Christ and Philip in the New Testament. So, yep, it's happened before. Now, so I'm not sure I believe that. I'm not sure you're a Christian, all right? We're talking about here things that God has said in his word. And if you don't believe it, you've either not been instructed in it, and you need to get in get it in gear already, or you've been instructed in it and you've rejected it, in which case you're wrong and you need to repent, or you just don't even believe in Jesus Christ in the first place. And then I could understand why you wouldn't believe any of this. But anyway, it's in the Bible. The rapture, by the way, with, or even dying in Christ is more like moving than dying. And certainly the rapture is like that. It's more like uh, if we die before the Lord returns, it's more like um, see, you, see you soon, see you later, maybe even soon, but I'll miss you in the meantime. But we know we're going to see him again. That's the comfort, right? And then um, if we're literally among those believers alive when Christ returns, it's, it is like just moving. We're moving from this planet Earth to a wonderful heaven. And then we get into some of the questions that I cannot solve today. Maybe we'll touch on this in the next episode. Is the rapture pre-tribulation? Is it mid-tribulation? Is it only some super worthy Christians who are raptured? and the rest are left? Is it the pre-wrath rapture of the church, or is the rapture post-tribulation? We'll talk more about those later. I do want to tell you that I believe, after all the years I've studied the Bible, read about it, read a lot of other scholarly works on it, uh, more than 40 books on the subject, easily, um, I believe the rapture is pre-tribulation. And we'll deal with some of the arguments against that, so forth. And hey, if you see it another way, whatever. That's how I see it. Thanks for listening today. I know this has probably been a lot longer than normal. I appreciate your staying with me all the way through it. And uh, I hope this has helped you and that you will share this with others who need to know about this vital doctrine of the Christian faith because it does affect how we live. Well, tune in to the next episode, uh, hopefully next week, Extraction Part 2, After the Rapture. And we'll be breaking down more about future Bible prophecy in that episode. Tell others about the podcast. They can find it at dredhill.podbean.com. That's D-R, no period after the D-R, D-R-P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Others need to know about this too. And by the way, if you need counsel, you have questions, you're welcome to call during normal business hours, Eastern Time in the United States, 888-537-8720. One more time, 888-537-8720. Thanks again for listening and God bless you richly is my prayer.